I've been uh, working through a read the Bible in a year uh, plan, and I'm actually a couple days behind on some of my Old Testament readings. And uh, I've, I've, I'm, I'm stuck right now in uh, like Numbers 18, and I've gone through Exodus and, and gotten the whole story of God delivering the Israelites uh, from slavery in Egypt, and then uh, got over into Leviticus and a lot of uh, rules about how the community of faith is to live before God and honor God. And in Numbers, there's some of that too, and obviously some census numbers, hence the name of the book. But um, as I'm reading through this, I'm seeing some practices uh, about how uh, the priests were to lead the people in worship. And you know, if I came up here today and I had a bowl full of, of grain and I was going to burn it and I had a bunch of incense and I had a, a leg of lamb and I was waving it and then I had a bowl of blood and I threw some against that wall and I threw some on Matt's guitar and I threw some against the music stand, uh, someone would probably say, what are you doing? And, and if I said, oh, I'm just following the prescriptions for the priest in the book of Leviticus, hopefully someone uh, would take the time to do something more than say you're crazy. Hopefully someone would say, you know what, Sam, those were written in the book of Leviticus. Those were in the Old Testament, and they were all pointing to something better, something greater. They were all pointing to Jesus Christ, his coming, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and what he would do to reconcile people to God. All of those things were shadows pointing to Jesus. And since Jesus has come, those things, those practices are antiquated. They're no longer necessary. See, the Old Testament points us to Jesus and his ministry and what he would do. Now, there are some people who look at passages in the New Testament and they say, oh, well, these passages are antiquated also. They're, they're no longer necessary. We're no longer supposed to practice those. And if you ask them, well, what has happened, that what has been fulfilled, that those are no longer necessary, they really don't have a biblical argument. They, they really don't have something that the New Testament clearly points to. The New Testament points to the return of Jesus, his second coming, but there's nothing else really in the New Testament that, that we're pointed to that tells us once this thing happens, you don't have to do all these love one another. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do... It's really not there. There's not some magical thing that we're pointed to in the New Testament that would ever lead us to believe that, that we shouldn't follow the prescriptions of how to live as the people of God in the New Testament. What the New Testament does give us, there are passages that teach us how to live in the tension between Jesus' first coming, where he lived and died and came back to life, and his second coming, where he will come again. And so we need those passages to teach us how to live. And that brings us to today's text. Today we're going to jump in to James chapter 5 and look at verses 13 through 18 which is a passage that we believe is still applicable to us today that has not been fulfilled by anything else, that it is still for God's people to teach them what to do and how to live in the tension between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 5, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles, black Bibles that are provided for you. 
And James chapter 5 is located on page number 1013 in those Bibles. James 5.13 says this, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently excuse me, that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, the, uh, the book of James, the letter of James, the epistle of James, whatever, um, is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament because of all the helpful instruction there is that applies to basically life in general. It's written by James, who is one of the pastors of the church in Jerusalem, and he's also the half-brother of Jesus. So we got a guy who... who Saul, Jesus' entire life, not just his three-year-long ministry, but a guy who witnessed Jesus' entire life. And he wrote uh, this, this book primarily to Jewish Christians. It applies to Christians. It applies to all churches uh, of all times, but it's primarily written to Jewish Christians. And in verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Now, he's already talked uh, in in the rest of the book, about some trials that these Christians were going through. They were suffering, and their suffering was caused from persecution. And the economic, um, the economic hardships that corresponded to that persecution. So they were experiencing some poverty. They were experiencing opposition um, from other Jews. They were experiencing opposition sometimes just uh, from leaders and, and whatnot, and the government leaders in the places where they lived, and, uh, and they were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And James says, is any one of you suffering? And if you look at the rest of the letter, what he has in mind here is suffering from persecution. He says, are you suffering? You should pray. What should you pray for? Should you pray for relief? Should you pray that the suffering would end? Well, we're not led to believe that's what you should pray for. We're led to believe that you should pray for endurance. Because Paul says in Romans 5, and again in 2 Corinthians, uh, and then James says here in this part and elsewhere in the book, chapter 1, um, and then Peter says in his epistle, 1 Peter, that when we are persecuted and when we are opposed for our faith in Christ and we yet endure that shows the genuineness, the authenticity of our faith in Christ. If you're a Christian, if you profess Christ, if you live for Christ when it's easy, then what does that say? But if you swim upstream, if you go against the way of the world, if you go against 
what's, what's easy, what's culturally acceptable and normal because of your faith in Christ and you endure opposition, then that proves that your faith is genuine. And so those who are suffering from persecution should pray, and they should pray specifically for endurance so that they can withstand their trials and so that their faith, when tested, will prove genuine, that they will make it clear that they are authentic followers of Christ and not just people who are are along for the ride while it's popular or easy. Then in the second half of the verse, he says, Is anyone cheerful? Are things going well for you? Are you experiencing blessing in life? If so, you should sing, you should worship, you should praise God. A lot of times when things are going rough, it's easy to go to prayer. When things are going well, we just kind of live life. James says when things are going bad, pray. And when things are going good, worship. Realize that the goodness is from God and worship God. And then in verse 14, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Now, some commentators say, oh, this means weak. This means weak because of all the suffering that you've gone through. Probably not. It probably literally means physical sickness. He's already dealt with suffering, and he's dealt with those who are enjoying prosperity or peace or whatever, and now he's talking about physical sickness. And it's interesting to note that much of what the Bible, specifically the New Testament, has to say about suffering is suffering because of persecution or suffering because of resisting sin and temptation and Satan. Most of what the Bible, the New Testament, has to say about suffering is persecution, the results of persecution, uh, or living in this world, fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil, resisting sin, resisting Satan, not necessarily physical sickness. And so here, James is specifically separating suffering and physical sickness, and he says, if you are sick, here's what you should do. The first thing he says, let them call who? The elders, the pastors. We've said this many times. It's all throughout Scripture. The biblical model of the way the local church is to run is not one dude and then uh, a board or one dude and 12 committees, or three dudes that all went to school and got professional degrees, and then everyone else gets to vote on everything, but rather a team of dudes, a team of men, whose lives uh, are examples of godliness and growth and grace, and they lead together as a team. They are shepherds, they are caregivers, they are caretakers for the church. And so James says, is anyone sick? Then call the elders, call the pastoral team to to come. Not just the staff guys, but the guys who God has placed in this body and then raised up to lead the people of God as a team. And what are they to do? They're to pray. We're led to believe that they should pray for healing because of the context of the rest of the passage. It's not just a a blanket... uh, Uh, We want God's will to be done because obviously if you're a believer, you want God's will to be done. If you don't want God's will to be done, you're probably not a believer. And so their prayer, the rest of the passage would lead us to believe, is specifically for healing. So that this one would be raised up, that they would be restored to fellowship. And they are to anoint them with oil. Now, this practice is largely absent in most churches. 
Uh, never saw this practiced in the church I grew up in. Uh, remember attending a church in college, and uh, some people could, now that church had its own set of issues. We won't go into all those. But uh, some people visited one Sunday and never came back, and I asked another friend, why did they not come back? Their primary issue wasn't da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, the other issues of this church. Their primary issue was, well, they anointed someone with oil and prayed for them, and, and they'd never seen that and just didn't think that was the right thing to do. The reason why it's largely absent is in most churches is based on a theological position uh, that God no longer heals today, which is founded really more on personal experience than it is on Scripture. And so the immediate context here that James is addressing is probably someone who is homebound. Their illness has prevented them from gathering with the church for worship, and so they are to call for the elders to go to them, and it, and it says that the elders are to Pray over them. Now, this is the immediate context. It doesn't mean that it's wrong for elders to pray for sick people in other contexts. It doesn't mean that someone who was sick uh, wouldn't be at the, uh, at the worship gathering of the church and ask the elders to pray for them there. That's not what it... What it, uh, it doesn't mean that that's wrong. The immediate context is just simply that the elders are going to one who is probably homebound and they are to pray for them, prayer for healing, that they might be restored, uh, that they might be raised up, as verse 15 says. Now, there's some disagreement. Uh, they're, they're to pray for healing. Okay. Some people say, I, I get it. Yeah, they're, the person's sick. They're to go and pray, so they're to pray for healing. That seems to make sense. There's some disagreement about the, the bit with the oil. What was the oil for? And, uh, and some people are quick to point out, oil was often used medicinally in the, the ancient world. And that's true. Uh, there's two references outside of this one to oil being used on someone who is sick or injured in all of the New Testament. So we're kind of limited. We've got this, and we've got two other verses to use to figure out what this might be talking about. But in Luke chapter 10, we have the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We, we know a guy uh, got jumped by robbers. He got beat up. Uh, he's in bad shape. He's laying on the side of the road. A couple people pass him by. And finally, a Samaritan man comes along. It's pretty significant to the story because there's a lot of racial tension between Jews and Samaritans, uh, probably equal to or worse than uh, tension between uh, blacks and, and whites or African-American and Anglo-Americans back in the 60s and even further back. And uh, so the Samaritan man comes along, sees the Jewish man beat up on the side of the road, hurting. And verse 34 of chapter 10 says, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The screen, uh, verse should be on the screen. Uh, he went to the man and he was beat up. And so it said that he poured on oil and wine. Now here it would look like oil is clearly medicinal. He poured on the wine because the alcohol had an antiseptic uh, value to it, uh, to pour that in his wounds, to kill off any bacteria. And then he put on the oil to, to soothe the wounds. It had a comforting, soothing, healing effect. And so we have one reference where oil is clearly medicinal. We're not told anything about prayer. It just seems like the guy is using natural means that God has given 
for the benefit of this man's health, oil and wine. But then there's another uh, verse. It's in Mark chapter 6, verse 13. And um, we're told that Jesus has commissioned the 12 uh, disciples, the 12 that he has chosen. He's told them to go out ahead of him into villages and to proclaim the gospel and to heal the sick and to drive out demons. And in verse 13 it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, uh, this passage probably sheds a little bit more light on, on James chapter 15, or 14 for us. Because if oil in this context was just a natural means, it was just used medicinally, then it wouldn't really seem to add anything to their proclamation of the gospel. So here I am, one of the twelve called by Jesus, going out into the surrounding areas which are inhabited by Jewish people, and I'm proclaiming that the Messiah is here, that the kingdom of God is among us, that we must repent and believe, and then I pull out some Neosporin, and I put it on Meredith's scratch, and her scratch gets better. And I said, see, there it is, evidence that the kingdom of God is among us. The Messiah has come in power because her scratch got healed because I used Neosporin, something that all of us have in our medicine cabinet. And people would scratch their heads and they would say, Dude, we can all put Neosporin on a scratch. That doesn't show anything about the power of God. Why should we believe that the kingdom has come any more today than anyone who proclaimed that it had come before? There's no power that's accompanying your message here. But if, in sticking with some of the symbolism in the Old Testament, oil is used to picture the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, the work of, the, of God, as anointing with oil is used often throughout the Old Testament. If I'm one of the twelve who goes out into the Jewish countryside and says, the Messiah has arrived, the kingdom of God is among us, repent and believe the gospel, and I pray over Meredith and I put that oil on her and bang, she's healed instantly, instantly, or very quickly, rapidly, then people say, hey, when we use oil, it doesn't work like that. So clearly, there's something going on here that's related to their message, that the kingdom of God has come in power, and so we should repent and believe because God is doing a new thing among us, and we must get serious about our sin and turn to the Savior. It would seem clearly from Mark chapter 6 that the oil in that passage is not used uh, medicinally, but rather symbolically to show the accompanying power and presence of the Holy Spirit, along with their prayer and their proclamation of the kingdom of God. And so it is likely, since the context is healing and since prayer is mentioned as well in James chapter 5, that the oil is being used not medicinally, but being used as a powerful symbol of the Spirit's presence to direct people's focus Godward and so that their faith is in God and not in oil and not in man. And so the oil is probably not medicinal but symbolic of the Spirit's presence. Then verse 15 is amazing because we have a guarantee of healing. It says that the the sick one will be saved. They will be raised up. There is a literal guarantee of healing. Now, 
Some people would say, well, saved and raised up has to do with, A, the condition of the person's soul. If they were a sinner, then they will be saved. And raised up has to do with the resurrection of the dead when Jesus returns. Even though this person is homebound and sick and separated right now, someday when Jesus returns, their body will be raised from the dead and their body will be whole and well forever. Doesn't quite seem like this will do. Uh, Because James is talking about immediate issues and talking about solutions to immediate issues. We're led to believe that the sick one is probably a believer since he's writing to churches and he's writing to Christians. So it probably is talking about literal physical healing. There's a guarantee here of physical healing. Now, before any of you shut me down and say, he's preaching some kind of word of faith. God wants everyone to be in perfect health. I'm going to shut out the rest of the message. Don't go there yet. I'm going to flesh this out a little bit. But verse 15 is a guarantee of physical healing. And the means that God uses to bring the physical healing is the prayer of faith. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, there is a direct connection in many settings to faith and healing. Someone was healed and Jesus said, it is your faith that made you whole. Or someone has a sick servant and they tell Jesus, you don't have to go pray for them, Jesus. Just say that they are made well. And I believe that you're powerful enough that you can do that. And Jesus says, I've never seen such faith in all uh, of the Jewish community, in all of Israel. There's a direct connection throughout Jesus' ministry to healing and faith, though not every healing was attributed to the recipient's faith. But often there is uh, an emphasis on that. Likewise, Jesus rebukes his disciples on several occasions for their lack of faith in his person and his power. And also in James chapter 1, James is telling Christians to pray for wisdom, but he says, if you doubt, you shouldn't expect that God would give you anything. If your prayer is not a prayer of faith, if you're doubting, if, well, God, I want you to give me wisdom, but I'm really not expecting it, why, why would you think that you would get anything? You're a double-minded person. You're uh, professing to trust in God, but you really don't. And so there's quite an emphasis on faith. And it should ask us, or stop, it should cause us to stop and ask ourselves, when we pray for ourselves or others for physical healing, Do we truly anticipate that person to be made well? Do we pray the prayer? Do we couch the prayer in such a way that we actually are saying that we don't expect they'll they'll be made well? We want them to be made well, but we really don't expect it, and so we just want everyone to, to kind of be prepared for the worst. Do we really trust, not presume upon God, but trust? As Hebrews 11.1 says, do we really exhibit faith, the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. Now, I met a couple, a uh, couple months back, several months back, at uh, an Acts 29 event. Acts 29 is a church planning network that we're a part of, and uh, this was a, a conference of sorts. And there were people who were there who were going to be assessed as to whether or not we would recommend them to be church planners. And I was on one of the assessing teams, and there was a couple who we had the privilege of uh, assessing. 
and uh, they have to fill out all kinds of documents, their theological positions, a questionnaire talking about issues of sin in their past, uh, their current practice of growing in grace for husbands, how they're leading their wives spiritually. There's a lot of things that they have to tell us about. One of the things that I noticed in this guy's uh, whatever information was, A, that uh, he was a, what you would call a continuationist. He still believed that God healed and did miraculous things and that gifts like those listed in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, more the, some of the more phenomenal spiritual gifts, he, he believed that all of those still existed, that God had not put an end to any of that. Another interesting thing in his packet was that uh, his wife uh, had gone through, I believe it was maybe or maybe not surgery, but had gone through uh, chemo for breast cancer within that past year as well. And so in one of the kind of breaks, we were talking, and I said, you know, how, how, did, you, how did you walk that balance? As one, someone who believes that God is completely sovereign and completely in control of all things, that nothing happens outside of the will of God, and yet two, as someone who believes that, that God still works in phenomenal ways, miraculous ways oftentimes, how did you balance that out? As your wife is going, she's diagnosed with breast cancer and she's going through chemo, uh, asking God for healing and yet submitting to uh, the possibility that it was not his will for healing. And, and I, I've never heard a statement, I've never heard it said so well. He said, we just believed that God would heal her until he didn't. We believed that God would heal her until he didn't. We just trusted. God, we're just asking for healing and we're trusting for healing and we're trusting for healing. And until the day that you don't heal her, until the day that she dies, we're just believing that you're going to make her better through whatever means. We're not demanding it. We're not saying that you have to do it, that this is a right. We're not even presuming to know that uh, that, that is your will, that that is what will actually happen. But we believe you're good. We see that you often heal. We're told to ask for healing. And so we're just going to trust you that you will make her better unless you don't. And, and we'll continue to trust until that day uh, where she would die. And we can say indefinitely, it was not the will of God for her to get better. And we're putting her in the ground, and she will be raised anew in a perfect body at the resurrection. And I thought, man, that is such a perfect summarization. We'll just believe that God will heal her until he doesn't. Now, nowhere in this passage are we told that it's the faith of the one being prayed for that guarantees the healing. James says the prayer of faith will, will heal. But it doesn't say the, pray, the faith of the one being prayed for. So in the case of this couple, I would not dare to say, oh, well, God made her better through chemo, praise Jesus, but he didn't necessarily do anything miraculously in answer to their prayer, and that's probably because she didn't have enough faith Scripture does not teach that. We cannot say that. We should never assume that someone wasn't healed because of their lack of faith. We just, we just step beyond what Scripture says if we ever get to that point. Likewise, this verse does not tell us that it's because of uh, the great faith of those who are doing the praying. It doesn't say the prayer of great faith of the elders' great faith is what will heal. Many a compassionate, sincere, devoted pastor has prayed for a believer 
in time of sickness only to see that uh, God's will was for that person to go home and be with the Lord and not to be raised up. So what does that mean? That, that the one praying, being prayed for didn't have enough faith? No, we just said scripture, we can't go there. Scripture doesn't say that. Does it mean that the pastor didn't have enough faith? Well, maybe if Pastor Joe had prayed a little bit harder, she'd be here today. No, scripture doesn't say that. We're not going to go there either. What kind of faith guarantees healing of the sick? Uh, I believe, along with several other commentators, pastors, uh, a fairly familiar name, a guy named John Piper, uh, I believe, uh, as do these men, that when this verse says the prayer of faith, it's actually talking about what Scripture refers to as the gift of faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a listing of more miraculous or phenomenal gifts that are manifestations of the presence of the Holy Spirit. One of them is the gift of faith. It just says the gift of faith, and it doesn't really tell us anything more in that chapter what it looks like. But then in the next chapter, uh, Paul says, if I have the faith to move mountains. Okay, maybe that's a reference to the gift of faith. What it's also a reference to is in Mark chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, after Jesus has cursed a fig tree and it has died and his disciples see that and they ask him about it, Jesus says, I tell you that if you have faith and you ask, you can ask for the mountains to be removed and be thrown into the sea. Now, I've prayed about a lot of stuff in my life. And I've been very sincere and very earnest and very hopeful and expectant in a lot of those instances and have not seen the thing that I prayed for come to pass. Does it mean that I did not have faith? I would not say that. Maybe I'm being too prideful. I would not say that, though. And this prayer of faith guarantees that they will be saved, that they will be raised up, that the sick will be made whole. So is there something supernatural about this faith? It would appear so. It would appear that this is likely a gift of faith, something where God has supernaturally given someone certainty that this will come to pass. And they pray it with that type of confidence because God is sovereignly uh, willing for it to happen. God will often heal through lesser faith, but will always heal where the gift of faith is sovereignly given. And it seems that the prayer of faith here could likely be a reference to the gift of faith that the Holy Spirit sovereignly bestows so that God's will is accomplished. Verse 15 also says that if, if, capital I, F, if they've committed sins, those sins will be forgiven. On the one hand, sin and sickness are always related. Uh, In that, sin brought sickness into the world. Before there was sin, there was no sickness. And so sickness is a general effect of the fall uh, of sin. And as all of us are born sinners and our bodies have not yet been liberated from the curse of sin, or we have not experienced that liberation, we will all still get sick from time to time, and someday we will all die. And just because we get sick doesn't mean that we've committed some sin to cause it. Uh, There's a story in John chapter 9 about a man born blind, and Jesus' followers say, uh, Jesus, 
Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither, but to show the power of God. So that sin or that sickness, that man's blindness was a general effect of sin. If it were not for sin in the world, there would be no sickness. But Jesus says that it's not because of anyone's personal sin that that man was experiencing blindness. However, sometimes sinful actions can cause sickness and even death. Now, obviously, someone would say, well, if you're a drug user and you're sharing needles, there's a chance that you could contract the disease because doing drugs like that would be sinful, and so you're doing things that are unwise and you could contract the disease. Or likewise, if people are having sex outside of God's plan for sex, uh, they could also contract a disease, and someone would say, oh, okay, well, it's, those are obvious sins that are often related to sickness. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is rebuking the Christians at the church at Corinth because when they gather together for worship, they are hateful and judgmental. They are not loving one another. And when they partake of the Lord's Supper, they eat a meal together as the Lord's Supper. And some of the poor were hungry because they didn't really have anything to bring. And some of those who were more wealthy were eating exorbitantly, and they were drinking to the point of drunkenness, and they were not loving one another. And there was not a self-giving love among them. And Paul says that those who eat and drink without regarding the body, the body not being... Jesus' physical body, and not only being Jesus' spiritual presence, but being the body of Christ, the people of God gathered. He says, those who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many of you are sick or have now fallen asleep. Sleep being uh, metaphorical for death. Paul says, because of the sin that's among you, when you gather as the people of God, that sin has resulted in sickness. So sin and sickness are not always directly related. The response, someone's personal responsibility, their sin uh, resulting in sickness, that's not always the case, but sometimes it is. Jesus also heals a man who's an invalid uh, for 38 years in John chapter 5, and then Jesus finds him later and he says, now, now you're, well, go and sin no more or something worse may happen to you. Now, on the one hand, something worse could clearly be hell. And hell would definitely be worse than, than, being, uh, than physical paralysis. But it seems like Jesus is talking about a more immediate context. You've been healed. You are no longer physically handicapped. Now, go and sin no more, or else something worse may happen than just being an invalid, than just being physically disabled. So though there is not always a direct connection between sin and sickness, sometimes there is. Sometimes there is. And it seems as though James is using this statement as a springboard into verse 16. So basically, James is saying, because sin and sickness are sometimes, not always, sometimes related, and because forgiveness of sin precedes or at least accompanies physical healing, what should you do? 
You should repent of your sin. You should confess your sins. He tells them to confess their sins, and the reason is because sin in the life of a believer is often a private thing. As, a, as an unbeliever, as someone who's not a follower of Christ, we often wear our sins on our sleeve. We are not apologetic about our choices, our priorities, our lifestyle. That's who I am. That's what I do. Nobody can judge me but God. How dare you put my life under, you know, under the microscope? But as a Christian, we like to put on a facade that we've got it all together and that, that we live as perfectly righteous people. And so our jealousy, our anger, our greed, our envy, our lust, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, a lot of those things are things that we hide. Even Christians who still struggle with drunkenness often do not drink to the point of drunkenness in in a gathering of people, but oftentimes seclude themselves and just get drunk at home. My sins are private. So when we confess our sins, when we acknowledge our sins, we break the power of secret sin and we make that thing known. This is a sin. I no longer want to follow after that thing instead of Jesus. So James says, confess your sins. Break that power. That sin and sickness are sometimes related, so confess your sins. Be open about sin and hate it. Learn to hate it and turn from it. And verse 16 also uh, opens the door on forgiveness and healing to get the whole church involved. We've just gone from the elders coming to pray for the sick person. And if they have sinned, they will not only be made physically well, but they will be forgiven uh, to a point where the doors are, are blown open. And James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. No longer is this ministry isolated to only the elders. Yes, the elders are to be called for. The elders are exemplary, to, supposed to be exemplary in their lives. They are responsible, setting an example for the church and caring for the church. And so uh, the elders are called for in this instance. They are to be men of strong faith and character. But, James says, the elders are not the only ones who can pray. You should confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Last Sunday, um, I had strep throat, actually earlier in the week I had strep throat, I had been on antibiotics, but I was still feeling some discomfort, and uh, something strange happened, I'd never experienced this before, in the back of my head, uh, I would have just random periodic headaches, like twinge of pain, then it would go, and I could actually touch my, my scalp in certain places, and it was very tender, it was very sensitive to the touch, and and after some deliberation, we thought, you know, that's probably uh, um, the cause of, of the infection, that the strep throat, my tonsils swole up, and it probably, it was on the lower side, and so it's probably an effect of the sickness, and it was, it was painful, uh, but it was just real random. And so last Sunday after worship, Michael was gone. Uh, I asked Marcus, who's the other, one of the other elders, to come and pray for me, and Jason Lukowitz and uh, David Reese were also still hanging around up front, and I asked them to pray as well because I know that they believe that God is still a healing God. And uh, I asked Marcus to pray over me, and I asked Dave, I said, Dave, why don't you just go ahead and, and you know, smear, smear some of the oil on me? And Dave was like, uh, me? And, 
And I didn't say, well, why would you hesitate? And, and it would seem, because Dave is a good Bible-believing uh, brother, that he's probably thinking, wait a minute. James chapter 5 says, let the elders come and pray and anoint. So I'm not an elder. Marcus is an elder. Shouldn't Marcus be doing all this? But remember, verse 16 opens the doors on this. We can all pray for each other. We can all be praying for each other for healing and forgiveness, uh, not just the elders. Uh, this is an awesome example of a community event of doing life together. It's not just the pastors who are involved in people's lives. It's us uh, together involved in one another's life, confessing our sins to one another, being real and transparent and authentic with one another, and then praying for each other. And it's a community event. And verse 17 and 18 are truly amazing. Their, their support, Paul, uh, James is encouraging these believers to pray for one another, and, and, and he follows it up by this supporting statement. But there's a reason that I find it's truly amazing because among those who would argue that miraculous gifts have ceased to exist, one of the ways that they launch into this is they say, throughout the Bible, the majority of the miracles and extraordinary acts of God can be isolated to three distinct periods. One period would be Moses and the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. There was a lot of miraculous things that happened. And another would be the prophets, but specifically Elisha and Elijah. Between those two believers combined, there were more miracles done than probably all the prophets put together. So that's another distinct period in God's miraculous activity. And then Jesus and the apostles. And so we see these spurts of miraculous activity. The majority of the miracles in the Bible are combined to these three periods. And so we should not expect to see in our day and age things like those that happen in those distinct periods. Now remember, James just said we should pray for one another that we might be healed. All of us. And he's responding to those who might say, well, James, I'm not an apostle like you. I'm just, I'm just a local church pastor. I'm just one of the elders. I, I'm not even a half-brother of Jesus like you are. Or someone else who might say, I'm not even an elder. I'm just... A guy, I'm just a gal, I'm just a believer who's part of the church. I don't have a title. And James says, no, you should pray for one another, and here's why. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now listen, if all the miraculous events in the Bible were confined to three periods, and we should not expect God to do anything like he did in those periods in our day and age, wouldn't it seem odd for James to point to one of those individuals to encourage us to be prayerful for healing? Wouldn't that seem odd? I mean, it would be better for James to say, hey, I knew a guy who is just an ordinary believer. If you all uh, pray, you can maybe expect some of the things that he experienced. But, come on, Elijah was a prophet of God, so don't expect anything like what happened in Elijah's life. I mean, if, if that's what James really believed, that there was something so unique about that that never again should anything like that happen, then it would be wrong for him to refer to Elijah, right? But yet he refers to Elijah. And he basically is saying, Elijah was just a dude like you and me. And yet look how God used his prayers. So don't hesitate to pray. God can use anyone. No one except for Jesus is more than a vessel 
No one has anything inherent about themselves other than Jesus. God can use anyone. Look how he used Elijah. So don't hesitate to pray. Now, looking at this passage, asking specifically, how does it apply to us? There's three things that really stood out to me this week. One is that we don't pray and ask for healing, nor do we expect physical healing enough as a body. Uh, I, I, from time to time, hear about people in our, in our body who have gone to the doctor for this or that or taking medicine for this or that, and I think, or they're, or they're maybe even having surgery to repair an injury. And I think never once have you asked me to pray for you on a Sunday after everyone's doing their own thing. Never once have I heard any of your care group leaders say, you know, tonight we prayed specifically for so-and-so and this physical ailment that they've been struggling with for however long. Not to say that none of the, the care groups ever pray for healing, but I've heard of some people who I'm like, you really need your brothers and sisters to be praying for you. And I've, and I've gotten a sense that, that they have never taken that to the body. And I sense as a church that we neither pray and ask for or expect physical healing enough. I just believe that, that that's something that should be more a part of the body life. doesn't mean that we should always see physical healings, but that basically we should believe that God will heal until he doesn't. And God's healing touch is not isolated to uh, means uh, apart from human help. So when someone goes to the doctor and they get better, well, did the doctor heal them? No, God healed them, and God used the doctor. But we need to be praying throughout that time. When someone's sick and they take medicine, did the antibiotic heal them? No, God healed them, and he used the antibiotic. And we need to be praying for God's healing power to work through that. And so as a body, we should be praying and asking and believing, expecting healing more, physical healing more than we currently do. Another thing uh, that I I saw is that we perhaps don't take a holistic enough approach to our lives. Remember, sin and sickness are not always related, but sometimes they are. And uh, and confession of our sin to one another doesn't mean we need to confess it so that we can be forgiven. We confess it to God directly. We're forgiven because of what Jesus did. But there is a value in having that intimacy and vulnerability with one another and breaking the power of secret sin and getting it out there. That's, that's one of the things that we're supposed to be uh, cultivating in our care groups. But it isn't limited to a care group. I could grab a brother or sister afterwards on a Sunday or during the Lord's Supper or say, hey, can we meet for coffee this week? I, I just need to talk with someone. And we can be cultivating that as, as a body. It's not just something that is isolated to a church-sanctioned event. Well, it's Thursday, and man, I, I, I'm bearing the, the weight of this thing, and I really need to confess it, but church isn't until, the worship isn't until Sunday, and my care group isn't until next week, Tuesday, so I've just got to wait five days before I can confess it to anybody. No. We should be doing life together. That's the second thing that really stood out. And really, it's related to the third thing, um, and and that is how we tend to isolate ourselves. We need biblical community. We need 
relationship to the elders. The elders need to be able to know those who are in the body. The body needs to be able to know the elders so that they can call on the elders and have that relationship outside of a church event. And the praying for one another and confessing our sins to one another needs to happen outside, uh, more often outside of church events. There really needs to be a community, biblical community, sharing our lives together. This passage is extremely relevant for us. Thank God that it is not antiquated. It is for the church. It is for us today. Jesus has given us his word to show us how to live in the tension between his first and second coming. And James 5, 13 through 18 is much to our benefit in that regards. Amen. Amen.